Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Feminifesto podcast. This week, Keerthi and I are in conversation with Dr. Laura Schoberg. Dr. Laura Schoberg is a professor of political science. Her research interests are in the area of gender-based and feminist approaches to the study of international relations and international security. Her research has addressed gender and just war theory, women's violence in global politics, feminist interpretations of the theory and practice of security policy, queer theorizing in global politics and methodology, and the sociology of political science and international relations. Dr. Schoberg is the author or editor of more than a dozen books, including most recently, International Relations Last Synthesis with Samuel Barkin, and Gender and Civilian Victimization in War with Jessica Peet. Her work has also been published in several places, including the Security Dialogue, Review of International Studies, the Journal of International Political Theory, Conflict Management and Peace Science, and the Journal of Conflict Resolution. She has served as the editor of the International Feminist Journal of Politics and International Studies Review, as well as on the Council and Executive Committee of both the International Studies Association and the American Political Science Association. Dr. Schoberg's career is expansive and inspiring. Keithi and I have personally learned so much from her work and her research, and to be able to interview her was really a big honor for us. So do listen on to hear more from Laura herself. Hello, Dr. Laura. Thank you so much for joining us on the Feminifesto podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Let's get started right at the top then. So what inspired you to pursue a career in feminist international relations and international security? Well, the silly answer, but it's true, is I lost a debate round. Uh, in college, I was a competitive debater and uh, we did policy debate. There was a resolution about US foreign policy towards what the US government called rogue states. And I don't even remember what my side was arguing, but we met a feminist critique of it and we lost pretty badly. So I went to go buy the books because I didn't like to lose debate rounds. And I read the books and they were kind of everything I ever wanted to say about IR and foreign policy. But then I tried to apply them to the policy arguments I was trying to make, and I didn't know how to do that. And that frustrated me both on a I like to solve problems level um, and also because I thought it would be really important to think about how it would apply. So the more general answer is I saw this problem where I couldn't figure out the applicability of this really great theoretical work. And the more specific answer is and I wanted to win debate rounds with it. That sounds absolutely beautiful. And I wouldn't qualify it as silly on any account. We, we, we all come to our journeys with such um, interesting moments. But from there, you went on to do your, your PhD with Dr. Ann Tickner, a trailblazing feminist IR theorist. Um, we'd love to know what it was like to write your thesis under her guidance and then go on to co-authoring a book with her. Um. Yeah, I, I chose Anne because it was her book that I couldn't apply. Um, and at the time, we couldn't have been more different. Uh, I was, I think, 22 and obnoxious. Uh, now I'm not 22 and still obnoxious. Uh, but Anne is incredibly patient. Um, how she has put up with me for now almost 20 years, I have no idea. Uh, and 
very good combination of guidance and uh, letting you figure out your problems yourself. Uh, so she at once kind of gave me my own academic voice, but also told me when it sounded dumb, uh, which was quite nice. Uh, it's actually Anne that got me into academia. I went to grad school. I gave myself three years off of a pre-planned career track that didn't include academia. And I left grad school to go to law school. Uh, and Anne kept being like, are you sure you don't want to come to one more conference? Are you sure you don't want to write this thing together? Uh, and it only took a year or two for it to work. And I got hooked and I came back. So uh, in addition to the awesome training, I have Anne to thank for having an academic career at all. Um, and writing with Anne is great. Um, Anne is such a careful writer that her first drafts are the equivalent of my fifth drafts. And she's so insightful and wonderful. And so every time we get an opportunity to write together, I'm thrilled. Thank you so much for sharing that, Dr. Schoberg. It's so amazing to hear about your experiences with Dr. Tipner, especially because, you know, Katie and I have admired both of your work so much, and we've learned tremendously from both of you, so thank you. So you've been in this space of academia for many years now. What, what would you say has changed in the time since you began in the field in terms of gender and international relations? Um, a lot, I think, um, in good ways and bad ways, and it depends where and in what situation and how. Um, one thing that's changed is that there's this vibrant community of feminist IR that is bigger than I think any of us ever imagined even 20 years ago, much less the people who kind of started this 30 and 35 years ago. So... Uh, I think that that's great. It's, it's a massive community that does all sorts of really interesting research. Uh, it's important now that uh, intersectional work on gender, race, and decolonial thought is growing. Uh, queer theory is growing. Uh, those things are pretty awesome. Uh, in the U.S., I think that quantitative work operationalizing gender has too big a role. Uh, the good news is that many of those people are reading the feminist literature. Uh, the bad news is I think unintentionally they're also injuring its ability to continue to be assigned in classrooms and stuff like that. So that's my pessimistic uh, insight. But especially in Australia and New Zealand and all sorts of other places, uh, that's much less of a problem. Mm, and that's that's actually realistic, um, uh, even if one may label it pessimistic. But on that note, what do you think is holding us back from seeing feminist IR as mainstream IR? You know, I would have answered this question very differently a decade ago. A decade ago, I would say it's the epistemological closeness of our understanding of what mainstream IR is in this matrix of science and causality where whether we're talking about macro theory or mid-level theory or something like that uh, lots of people's CIR is requiring objectivity over politics and 
given that feminist IR rejects objectivity as a premise, or at least what counts as feminist IR, in my view, rejects objectivity as a premise. Um, that's a fundamental problem. And so you either change that matrix or you don't belong in it. And I think that that's an important answer to the question. But more and more, I think my answer to the question is the existence of something called mainstream IR is itself fundamentally problematic and violent for thinking about global politics. So it shouldn't be the goal to think about feminist IR as mainstream IR. It should be the goal to tear down the existence of these powerful camps that allow themselves to define the field often in complete contrast to anything socially or politically important that's going on in the world. I absolutely agree with what you said about the problematic nature about mainstream Maya, because as you said, it's so exclusionary and it mostly comprises of um, gatekeeping by those who are in power. And you also mentioned, you know, the violent nature of mainstream IR. So when you think about structural violence in international security, what are some of the key forms in which it manifests? And what would it actually take to dismantle these structures? I think the, the recent work crossing feminist political economy and feminist security studies is a really important part of this because I think a fair amount of the structural violence in the world is hunger, uh, lack of access to clean water, clean plumbing, uh, environmental problems, lack of access to healthcare. Those are all key structural violences in international security about which I don't know as much as I would like to. But I do know that when I start asking questions about things like food insecurity, I am just floored by how impactful that is on how many people's lives across the world. And yet we spend most of the pages of our security journals talking about things that impact very few people. So to me, one of the things that would be really important is to talk about the security threats that impact most of the people around the world instead of the security threats that are the biggest concerns in the halls of big government. Um, I think though also it's important to see discrimination itself as an important access of structural violence and security because it's not like these results are randomly distributed. They're distributed on the basis of gender, race, class, sexuality, ability, nationality, ethnicity. Those are the axes on which structural violence and structural insecurity are distributed. And given that they are themselves the content of international security. But I feel pretty strongly that saying that has to come with the caveat that that doesn't mean we should mobilize the agenda of progressive anti-discrimination in favor of peace uh, because I think that that itself is deeply problematic. 
Absolutely. Thank you for putting that so succinctly. Um, so speaking to a very specific um, component of structural violence, which is gender as basis of discrimination, uh, we often find essentialist arguments being made to include women in peace processes and leadership positions. Um, do you think these arguments haven't been retired already because patriarchy is at work or just the idea of homogenizing the notion of woman as it were? Um, I think there's probably some racism at work in it too. So I think that the not only have the arguments not been retired, they're actually increasing in salience, especially in the policy world, but also in American academia. So like the the quote unquote feminist piece, uh, I think is gaining traction rather than losing it, which scares me to death. Um, and it scares me to death because it instrumentalizes women and femininity, it essentializes women and femininity, and it's often used in service of race and religious discrimination. So across many entries into this literature, there's either an underlying or an explicit thesis. The first thesis is states that treat their women better make less war, and the second thesis is Islamic states treat their women poorly. And that's explicit some places, it's implicit some places. To me, it's structurally racist both places, especially because a number of times, whether it's manipulation or data availability, the data collected biases the sample in favor of making that argument. So to me, it has gender essentialism problems and race essentialism problems, and yet it sells, right? The first thing that somebody publishes when the US elects Donald Trump is a op-ed, I think it was in the New York Times, that said, well, he better treat his women good or else he won't have as many peace, as much peace, right? Like, and on one hand, I understand the terror of having elected Donald Trump. On the other hand, I think encouraging somebody like that to instrumentalize women scares me more than encouraging them to ignore them. And I think anytime you become a stereotype, even if that stereotype sounds good, it's a problem. And I think for us, that's why we've spent so much of our careers working on women's political violence. It's not that like we think women's political violence is, is a moral positive or something like that. We try to remain neutral. But it is that so long as there's this understanding that women are incapable of something, even incapable of something that sounds bad, that women remain incapable of something. And to me, this argument for the feminist peace, even if peace is a great thing and women can provide it, it still sticks women in this box that holds them unequal to men because their capabilities fill less of a spectrum. And so to me, this argument is gender subordinating. It's often used as race subordination. And it also doesn't make any sense. I think that was such a perfect way to describe why essentialism is problematic, Dr. Schober. Thank you for that. Um, uh, and thank you also for explaining the intersectional nature of the essentialist and racist arguments. 
So you are among a few of the advocates of the adoption of queer theory in international studies. What are some of the important lenses and voices that queer theory can activate in the space of international security and international relations? Um, I think definitely queer theory helps. So both it's useful perspectively and intellectually kind of in its own right. Um, Cindy Weber shows really impressively how it matters to methodology um, and epistemology in the ways that IR can think about the subject matter traditionally understood as global politics. I also think there's this great intersection of queer and decolonial work, um, including Rahul Rao's new book, um, which is, in my view, in a really impressive page turner which doesn't happen that much in academia. Um, I think that so substantively it rocks the foundations and some of the assumptions of IR, particularly assumptions of uh, progressivism, assumptions of futurism, a word that I used the other day in mainstream to mainstream IR people uh, who equated futurism of, as futurology and were insulted that I was calling them speculative. And I was like, I'm not calling you speculative, I'm calling you optimist. Uh, so it's kind of an interesting uh, exchange. Anyway, to me, it's really important, both methodologically, epistemologically, and also in terms of what it can tell you directly about global politics, the things that we're learning about sexuality in the state, the things that we're learning about pinkwashing, uh, the things that we're learning about weaponizing queer rights. Uh, all of these things require seeing sexuality and global politics in order to even start to understand. Well, thank you so much for putting that in perspective, Dr. Schoberg. That was extremely helpful to understand. Um, you also alluded to this a couple of times, um, the, the presence of racism in IR and the idea of uh, mainstream IR being violent. Um, so just sort of looking at methodology and approaches from that angle, uh, what would it entail to dip into Eastern and Global South-driven theoretical points um, in approaching <laughs> IR and um, examining uh, perhaps contemporary IR through those lens? language skills, um, among other things. Uh, I'm mostly joking, but one of the things that, two things I think really stop exchange. One of, one of them is language skills, which I think is much easier to fix or overcome. And one of them is this parochial understanding of what counts as IR versus what counts as policy studies, area studies, political theory, fiction. Uh, on one hand, IR goes around claiming itself to be an interdiscipline. On the other hand, uh, that interdisciplinarity also has race and class dynamics where it applies to a particular intended interdisciplinary coming, like view coming out of the mostly white, mostly Western existing discipline. Whereas when presented with projects that are 
from quote unquote outside IR, but relevant to its subject matter from different disciplines around the world, often you get the reaction that this isn't IR. Um, so the lines of IR are often drawn to exclude uh, work that I think would be IR in what you what you think of as kind of an Eastern Global South dri driven view. Um, to me, I think more dialogues with people who think about these issues in very different ways are pretty important. Um, I also think that it's important, and I don't know how to do this, but to stop the American publishing industry from having as much control over how IR is taught so many places in the world. Uh, one of the things that as I've traveled and talked to different people who teach IR in different places, I've seen that places you wouldn't expect at all, American textbooks are being used. Um, and they're like the worst of the world. They're narrow, they define the discipline, they define the discipline in a way that makes it largely irrelevant to the places that they're being used. Um, and so pretty often, these textbooks are setting the terms of the debate of, quote, disciplinary IR in different places in the world, silencing different contributions before they would even exist, right? So I think that also not letting the American sub-discipline set the tone in so many places might be a good place to start. And as I said, I have no idea how to do that. That was a really interesting way to think about how to incorporate Global South narratives into IR, Dr. Schoberg, especially with respect to um, the sheer disproportional power that American, American publishing houses hold. So as you just alluded to in, your pre in this answer, you mentioned how IR remains a heavily white and heavily male-dominated field with underrepresentation and the under-citation of women and non-binary people. What do you think can be done to surmount this huge gap? You know, this is another thing I might have answered <laughs> slightly differently a decade ago than I would now. So a decade ago, I would have said, you know, play the game. Um, just play it as well as, if not better than the people who invented the game. Um, so find women and minorities and non-binary people and their voices and make citation cartels and get them promoted to important positions and get them in and then like maybe things will change. Um, that's an important answer, but it's only a tiny, tiny part of the answer. Uh, in part because that puts way too much burden on the few people that you get in quote unquote. Um, and in part because representational diversity doesn't make for substantive diversity. Um, and in part because then you've also spent all this energy trying to change institutions that are by definition so deeply problematic that there's no amount of change in them that will fix the problem. Uh, which doesn't mean that you shouldn't try to change them because they end up being professionally important to a lot of people and changing them is important too. So I'm not advocating not doing that, but I am saying that I think I've come to realize that part of 
that there are structures in these disciplinary institutions, whether they're university institutions or academic organizations, that just have limits. And I think creating spaces outside of them is as important as trying to change them. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that as well. Um, I'm going to go um, more directly to, to work that you're actually concentrating on at the moment. Um, what's, what's happening at the moment? What's coming up um, in the days ahead of us? Um, yeah, I was going to say right now, talking to you, that's good enough for me. No, um, I'm working on a project called Sexual Relations as International Relations, which I initially saw as one book project and now see it as maybe a few. Um, the inspiring idea behind it was my head being stuck on a relationship between a dynastic marriage and contemporary marriage migration law. Um, so I should tell you how I think those relate because it sounds kind of silly just in one sentence. Uh, so in dynastic marriages, often the marriages were parts of treaties, uh, either formal or informal or alliances, either formal or informal. And either on the marriage or on the consummation, uh, Either there was an actual territory transfer um, or a transfer of governmental loyalty or a transfer of position or leadership or rulership. So in real ways, treaty marriages set the borders of states or proto-states. Uh, and especially in European relationships that change of territory would often happen at the consummation of the marriage uh, rather than at the ceremony of the marriage. Um, so I was interested in kind of the ways that sexual relationships generally and sex acts specifically ended up influencing state borders, um, not organically, but actually in a pre-thought about constructed way where everybody agreed that the sex act was the thing. Um, so that was interesting to me. And then in contemporary partner marriage migration law, um, and actually asylum law as well, uh, sex acts end up mattering to what state you're allowed to be in. Um, so many marriage migration laws and many asylum laws have explicit requirements and questions about the sexual nature of either the relationship or identity that you're claiming. Um, and genuine relationships can be understood or genuine claims to identity can be understood in terms of whether you perform the expected sex acts. So then sex acts end up setting who's allowed to be in particular borders. So before they set the borders, and now they set who can go in them. And to me, that tells you something about the relationship between sex acts and the international that I'm interested in theoretically exploring more. So that's the kind of big project that is going on right now. Um, and there are a couple of uh, other projects uh, one being about this work on uh, the feminist piece 
um, and either being on queer legal theory uh, that are going on at the same time. Wow, thank you so much for sharing that, Dr. Shobhar. I think truly you're carrying forward Dr. Enlo's um, sort of legacy and revelation that the personal is political by examining the whole dynamic of marital and sexual politics within IR. And we're so, so excited to see these projects come to fruition. And we're looking forward to learning so much more from you. So finally, uh, we want to ask you, what kind of advice would you give to young IR scholars and students today? Um, I would say, I, I guess a couple of things, maybe. The first is that if you're not doing this for your voice, you shouldn't do it at all. Um, there's so many people telling you, well, if you write like this, then you'll get a job. And if you, you know, tick these boxes, then you'll get a job or your job will go well or something like that. But honestly, like, academia isn't the most lucrative thing in the world. And if you write, like, not who you are to get a job, then you're going to end up having to write, like, not who you are for the job. And all of a sudden, you're stuck in a job that isn't that lucrative uh, that's making you do things you don't want to do, um, at which point you might as well pick a job that's more lucrative that's making you do things you don't want to do. Uh, but more seriously, like, I think the, like, don't forget what you got into this for, uh, because the combination of disciplinary requirements and performances uh, sometimes puts that in the backseat a little bit, um, and that's hard. Um, and the other thing is, like, most of what we study is really awful and really tragic. At least most of what I study is um, and really depressing. Uh, so kind of making sure both that you notice the good things and that you have a way to balance in your head the awful things you encounter at work and like finding a way to kind of still live your life. Uh, that's pretty important, I think. Thank you, Dr. Schoberg, for leaving us with those very powerful words about speaking power <laughs> to our truth and our voice. It was such a pleasure to speak with you today. And you know, we really thank you so much for your time. And I think I can safely speak for both Keithy and our listeners to say that this episode has been truly eye-opening and extremely insightful, and we're just very grateful for your time, Dr. Shobo. Well, thank you for having me.